I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Today on Truth and Movies, Steve Coogan and Michael Winterbottom join forces for a high street satire, so we ask the question, is greed good? We've been working on this party for over a year. He wants it to repair his reputation. It's all about image. The super yacht, the models. It's all part of a brand. Then Emily Beecham and Ben Whishaw star in Jessica Hausner's horticultural horror, Little Joe. Little Joe changes the people he infects. And in Film Club, it's back to the 80s for a mean green musical from outer space, Little Shop of Horrors. What kind of a weird plot is that, Seymour? Little Shop of Horrors, a story about a boy. I've given you sunlight, I've given you rain. All coming up in Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. Hello there, movie truthers. It's Michael Leader here, sitting in the host chair, sitting across this week from Simran Hans. Hello. And Matt Thrift. Hi. Welcome both. How are you both feeling today? Good. Good today. Pretty good. Pretty good. No news from the White Lies Towers this week, so I think we should just dive straight into the new releases. Up first, we have Michael Winterbottom and Steve Coogan in Greed. Greed tells the story of a self-made British billionaire, Sir Richard McCready, played by Steve Coogan, whose retail empire is in crisis. To save his reputation, he decides to bounce back with a highly publicised and extravagant party celebrating his 60th birthday on the Greek island of Mykonos. He was his own man from the start. What is the average wage in Sri Lanka? 50p a day. Imagine how many dresses I can get made. He was a bully. Not you had to shake my head. He was a parasite. It's classic tax avoidance. Go away! Look at that. You can't buy a view like that. Oh, wait, no, I have. We've been working on this party for over a year. He wants it to repair his reputation. It's all about image. The super yacht, the models. It's all part of a brand. A clip from Greed there. So, Simran, we said up top this was a high street satire. Is the target recognisable? Oh, absolutely. I think anybody who knows anything about the British high street will recognise the target of uh, of this film satire as Sir Philip Green of Topshop fame. Hmm. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of the satire and the comedy is very funny in this film. However, I think 
Winterbottom is trying to do a lot of different things at once and I think sometimes dropping some of the balls that he's trying to juggle in the process. There's sort of multiple plots happening. So we have um, the 60th birthday party being planned and all of the kinds of glamour and stress of all of that and you know, they're trying to do celebrity bookings and get people for half price and all of that's very funny. Then you have... Um, you have MacReady's daughter, Lily, trying to um, sort of be a reality star and they're filming that on uh, on the beach. There's also some refugees who have set up camp mm. um, because we're in Greece, so he's touching on that. There's a former employee of MacReady whose relative was involved in uh, a fire in a factory, a garment factory in Bangladesh, um, which is sort of seems to be based on the 2013 real life events. There's a lot of things being juggled, and it's all kind of done in this mockumentary style format, told through the perspective of David Mitchell's character, Nick, who is a journalist turned biographer, kind of tracking the story, going back and forth between his childhood, him being in court. Um, and there's all these moving parts that are quite difficult to, to juggle. How many of those hit the target, do you think? Or is it too scattershot to say? I think the only one that's really successful for me is the really light stuff, the party stuff. I think all of that's really funny. But some of the other stuff just doesn't quite work. Matt? Yeah. I mean, I agree with agree with Simran. Um, I mean, I think Gordon Gecko probably overstated it. I mean, greed is kind of barely, barely okay. I mean, there's there's just so much going on from its Howard's End um, allegory that it begins with that, you know, this Philip Green impresario figure that's played by Steve Coogan is is effectively, you know, Henry Wilcox from, from Ian Forster, this guy that's made his fortune by exploiting, you know, workers for slave labour in the in the colonies. And then that's all played along with this other allegory about, you know, Rome being built on slave labour as well in the form of this toga party that he's throwing. Um, I just think as, as kind of satire and as comedy, it's it's neither uh, kind of sharp enough or really funny enough. I mean, it's perfectly amiable. And these, you know, these guys, these actors are, you know, a good bunch to spend, you know, a couple of hours with. But it just never really raises above the, uh, the level of what it needs to be. It never really takes off, I don't think. It's interesting that in the credits, uh, it says additional material by Sean Gray, from who wrote Veep and Succession, and um, he's sort of got a, a strange writing credit there. But I don't think the the satire is as mean or as sharp or as funny as anything like Succession. Right. Matt, you mentioned the, the cast, and this the cast does go quite deep. Steve Coogan's bringing in a lot of his British comedy mates here. Any highlights, people you'd want to single out here doing good work? I think Shelley Henderson is, is good value as Steve Coogan's mother. I mean, I think she's probably only a few years older than him in, in real life, mm-hmm. but uh, she's she's playing a lot older. Um, Isla Fisher, I think, is is always great. She's uh, you know a special shout-out to her episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm this week, which is... Uh, which is quite something as well. Shirley Henderson has had quite the career. Uh, the, the last time we saw her on the big screen, apart from being Babu Frick in course, the latest yeah, Star Wars nice. film, she she played, it wasn't Steve Coogan's wife in Stan and Ollie, it was John C. Riley's wife. Uh, but yeah, it's interesting to see that she she's brought in by Steve Coogan, they're clearly old mates, to play these very strange roles. She clearly wanted to play his mum for a change. She also does an amazing Derry accent. It's so specific. Um, <laughs> it's really funny. But they sort of aged her up and she's all sort of hunched over and shriveled. Mm-hmm. Um, she's very funny in this. Some others, I think it doesn't quite work. I mean, Tim Key is usually pretty pretty good with the sort of, 
you know, sardonic one-liner. I mean, he's really just kind of shouts his way through this one, which is a, a little disappointing. And Asa Butterfield, um, he's got this weird kind of Oedipal fixation thing going on, which I don't think really works for much. Okay. Of course, there's there's Big Steve himself, if if we can call him that. Wearing a wonderful set of veneers um, <laughs> that are very distracting and large and polished. Where do you think this this ranks in his canon of characters? I think, you know, he can play this role in his sleep, the sort of smarmy, uh, pull yourself up by a bootstrap, self-made guy, but I don't think he's doing anything particularly new with that character. I don't think this one really stands out mm. to me. I mean, it's, you know, it's it's energetic, certainly. And, and I do, you know, there's, there's stuff to be said, I think, for the for the flashback sequences in this that kind of chart his chart his rise in the garment industry. But I mean, I think they've certainly done a lot of better work together. When you think back to, you know, something like a cock and bull story, which is, you know, just yeah. really rich as far as it's satirical. Did you feel like those flashback scenes worked better than the, the present day stuff? I mean, I just think they had a kind of energy and a bit of vip to them in the way that they were they were edited but I mean that's, I think as a as a whole not much of it really yeah for me, for me I just keep coming back to the the problem and, and you mentioned it earlier Matt with um, you know how it's inspired by Ian e. Foster and there's the quote that says only connect and it comes at the beginning of the film and at the end but I don't understand whether uh, Michael Winterbottom has you know deigned to connect these things himself or whether he's suggesting that the audience make the connections between all these different parts um, and I, I just think the target is just too all over the place. Like you, he, I think he's trying to take down the rich in a very basic way, you know, like, and it becomes literal in the idea of eating the rich later on in the film. I don't really want to spoiler it, but I do think that something happens that is very goofy sort of towards the denouement of the film that then seems undercut by this very serious ending where there's all these informational titles coming up as the credits roll talking about the real life problems in the garment industry and I just I understand that he is trying to bring people in and and make this quite serious topic more accessible but I just find it sort of slightly in bad taste I also think the refugee stuff um, was was very tonally weird for me I mean, it just tends to describe everything. I mean, there's a whole section, uh, again, that it keeps flashing back to, which is uh, you know, clearly based on Philip Green's uh, sessions in front of the Parliamentary Committee, you know, in terms of for the, for the pension funds that he ripped off. And and again, I mean, it's just, you know, it's it's describing all of these things and showing all of these things, but I'm not really sure it goes much further beyond that than anybody that has a passing, you know, knowledge of what who Philip Green is and what he's done and why he's bad. I just don't think this really digs any deeper and tells us much about who this person is you know the society that's created somebody like this and then you know the 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 way it kind of again without wanting to ruin anything the kind of dramatic irony with which the film ends is you know it's just a little a little a little weak I think do we have a sense of where Michael Winterbottom has made so many movies he's quite quietly one of Britain's the British film industry's most prolific filmmakers do we have a sense of who he is as a filmmaker does this slot into a sort of thread through his career at all for you Matt? No I, I mean I, d- I don't think I could point and tell you what a Michael Winterbottom film is One with Steve Coogan in it One with okay. Steve <laughs> <laughs> okay. um, I think the sense of satire and of kind of digging into the structure of British society 
um, and kind of coming from a generally leftist perspective. I think you could say a lot of those themes cut across his work. Um, but I think some of the the sort of more interesting things he's made recently are the weirder, less winterbottomy things, like uh, this very small film that he made a couple of years ago called The Wedding Guest, mm. which stars Dev Patel. And it doesn't really... 100% work but it's this weird wiry little thriller where uh, and it kind of turns into sort of like a steamy love story and it's sort of a bit silly but played totally straight and it's just kind of unexpected for him it's sort of almost like a travel log mm. as well it's really beautiful and like all shot on location in India mm. um, and so I maybe want to see him doing more unexpected things like that I think you know if people want Steve Coogan and Michael Winterbottom, the trip is there. All of those shows and, and the movie. Is there more than one movie? Well, the trip is coming back. Yeah. <laughs> no matter what we but say, that it's series, that, that series soon, is yeah. there for people to, to exist. And I, I guess you could say this is a kind of exaggeration of some of the things that are happening in, in those mm. films. Mm. Um, but uh, I don't think they're as, as funny or as subtle. Right. Well, let's put some scores on greed. Simon, I'll come to you first. This is in anticipation, enjoyment, in retrospect. I mean, anticipation, I guess, a three. Sort of don't don't mind Winterbottom, not a huge fan, neither here nor there. Watching it, probably give it a three as well. Some laughs, like, quite goes down quite easily don't think it's sort of doing anything that radical but also didn't hate the experience of watching it um but in retrospect i think it's weak um and i think i have to give it a two matt uh pretty much the same i mean it's i like this i like this bunch so uh and you know they've done some great stuff together in the past so probably a three in anticipation mm. um and then twos i guess i didn't really laugh as much as i hoped i would um and i didn't think there was a huge amount to think about either while i was watching it or afterwards mm-hmm. Well, that is Greed in cinemas this week. Up next, we have another new release, which is Little Joe. Against company policy, plant breeder Alice takes home a newly created species as a gift for her teenage son, Joe. They christen it Little Joe, but as it grows, so too does Alice's suspicion that her new creations may not be as harmless as their nickname suggests. Haven't you noticed how Chris has changed? I think little Joe's pollen has triggered something. Little Joe changes the people he infects. You're starting to notice too, aren't you? Fear can distort our perception of reality. A clip from Little Joe there. So, Matt, I said up front that this was a horticultural horror. Maybe mm. horror horror might be too strong a defining term for this film. How would you describe what this film actually is before we get into it? I mean, it definitely has a kind of sense of the uncanny about it without kind of going into going into full-blown horror. Although there are, there are kind of those elements and there are a few a few moments that kind of play more into those genre, genre tropes. Um... I mean, Jessica Hausner, the, this is her, I think, her fifth feature um, and her first in English. And she's, she's an Austrian, uh, Austrian filmmaker that's uh, throughout her career has played with, with questions of, of genre, basically. Um, her last film before this, five years ago, was a film called Amorfu, which kind of slyly subverted uh, 
the period costume drama. Uh, her film before that, which is I think probably her her best one, is a movie called Lourdes, which is about commercialization of the pilgrimage hotspot and miracles and questions of God and faith and so on. Um, so on the, I guess on the surface, this is kind of a genre of film as well. I, I was expecting uh, a pretty straight take on on the Frankenstein story. But this is kind of interested in, in other things, I think. Um, you know, whereas all of these kind of Frankenstein geneticist films that we that we see tend to tend to be more about the questions of playing God. This is more about uh, kind of biological imperatives and uh, really a study in motherhood and whether that biological connection is uh, is something that is always to be cherished. Let's say so. This this little plant uh, is a uh, is basically a metaphor. This this creation that she's made uh, that she's genetically modified that needs love and affection and and so on in order for it to to release this pheromone that makes people happy uh, ends up having the completely different effect this depersonalizing effect and and yeah it's really i guess at its heart a, a film about the relationship between her and her son but jessica hausner is is a is a director that's always um that's always used uh artifice and movement and space and design and this is a really really designed movie um almost to a fault perhaps quite a chilly movie as well one that i think i struggled perhaps to connect with in the moment but i'm starting to think since seeing it yesterday i was perhaps a little bit harsh on on my first thoughts of it mm. and something i want to sit with okay. for for a little bit longer i think Simran, how did you get on with with this film? Chiming with what Matt's saying or different? Well, I think that when I'm watching a movie, I'm looking for it to do a bunch of different things. But the two kind of questions that I'm asking myself are, is this moving me emotionally and is it moving me intellectually? Emotionally, no. I absolutely could not connect with this film. And I think defenders of it will say that that's kind of baked into the film's design, that it's very deliberately Mm. austere, that it is trying to kind of play with the idea of sterility, both in terms of the plant actually being sterile, and that's why there's all this drama happening um, with the the botanists looking after it. Um, And also with the sterility of Hausner's sort of cinematography and design. But also there are just things that are too sterile about it for me. Like, for example, the dialogue and the kind of interaction between the characters. I think that, you know, she's an Austrian filmmaker. This is her first in the English language. I believe she co-wrote it with somebody who does speak English as their first language. And I, I wonder if it's sort of fair for me to suggest that perhaps there is a sort of slight language translation issue happening here. Um, but for me, that kind of the flat affect of the delivery reminded me a lot of Yorgos Lanthimos, mm-hmm. who's a Greek filmmaker um, whose films I don't historically get on with. I, I like the favourite. I'm not a fan of, of his other English language movies. Um, but I, I wonder if that awkwardness that kind of cultivated awkwardness is something that is just a taste thing and maybe it just doesn't work for me. Um, In terms of, you know, what Matt was saying about it kind of being something that you want to mull over and think about, I think there are some interesting ideas happening here, but I I just find it slightly too cerebral for me. I, I, I don't find I can kind of lock into it comfortably and 
um, yeah, I don't I don't know whether that's her or whether that's me. I don't know if whether it's just me or you, Jessica. It's interesting. It's it's pretty kind of diagrammatic in the in the, in the one sense it kind of lays everything out and spells everything out for you. I mean, there's um, Emily Beecham's character goes to see uh, goes to see a shrink, Lin- Lindsay Duncan, played by Lindsay Duncan, who who's effectively her role is to 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 essentially spell out all of the subtext of the film in these therapy sessions, and it's. And I, I definitely agree with what Simran was saying in that in that when I was watching it, I didn't feel really any connection to it. But then when you think about when I thought about it being a film about lack of connection and depersonalization, and it is perhaps on purpose, perhaps not creating this sort of distancing effect, whether that makes it good or not. And for a film to be cold and about emotional distance and depersonalization to have that effect on me to the point where, you know, I'm not connecting with it, perhaps as a viewer, whether that's. And that's the kind of... Well, well, for me, the problem is that if it's about... If if the whole metaphor, the central metaphor of the film is about uh, the anxiety between a mother and a a son, um, we have to invest in that relationship between the mother and the son to care. Otherwise, it is just an intellectual experiment. And I just don't really feel, feel the chemistry between the two performers. I didn't really... I found their dialogue really clunky. Um, and and that didn't didn't really work for me. I I also thought that the film was saying something slightly interesting, slightly troubling about the pharmaceutical industry. Mm. And maybe that's a more kind of mm. surface level reading of it. But they're genetically engineering these plants to cure depression, um, and then the plants kind of take over the the characters and they become totally dependent on them and sort of shut out or shutting out all of their other relationships and I guess you could read that as you know people who take medication um, for depression as a kind of a critique of their dependency on drugs Um, but I, I don't know if that is sort of fair a fair critique to make I mean I, I understand that you know where she's coming from and this idea of, of numbness being something that um, you know we, we reach for when we're uncomfortable but I, I think that's a pretty strong statement to make so I, I wonder whether the answer is quite evident from the conversation so far but Jessica Hausner is a, a new filmmaker looking on British society or at least English language as a new entrant into English language cinema are we excited about this based on this film I mean I think she's she's doing what she what she did but I mean I think she's a brilliant director a brilliant visual director I mean Amor Fu I think perhaps most brilliantly um without the characters saying anything to each other you know tells you a lot about relationships and these people's places in the society and places in the context of the period drama as a genre as well simply by the way that she positions them on the screen the way she moves them in relation to one another and she's doing similar stuff here but I think also at the same time with this she's lumbered with a narrative that that needs a lot of explaining that you know she 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 needs to spell out a lot of what she's kind of doing here in terms of theme where before I think in her earlier films she she very much did that most of the work visually which is why I think I got so excited about her um so yeah so I think it's uh yeah a great a really a really uh exciting director with perhaps not the best match of material here I mean it looks cool the colors are amazing like it's this sort of pastel um color palette that's being used and um Emily Beecham has this kind of very striking orange kind of short hair in this sort of circular helmet-like bob and she's dressed in all these really kind of 
very coordinated outfits and boiler suits and pale mm-hmm. pink and pale grey and pale blue and there's a sort of mint green or sort of pale green yeah they're uh, lab, lab coats, coats. as a person of the ginger persuasion I'd love to own one of those <laughs> <laughs> I think it would look really good Michael thank you so much <laughs> what scores would we put on, on Little Joe then Matt I'll come to you first uh, I think definitely a four in anticipation um, I've loved basically everything else that she's done um Ah, just, this is this is a really tough one. I mean, probably a three in the moment. Um, and afterwards, I mean, I kind of want to sit with it a little bit more. And I mean, I only watched it yesterday, but I'll I'll give it I'll go with a three for now. Just which denotes me being on the fence. I think okay. a little bit. For me, I, w- I was reasonably excited about it and looking forward to it. Um, it had very positive reviews out of Cannes, where it premiered in competition. Um, Beecham won Best Actress. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I, I was looking forward to seeing it. And so I would say anticipation probably a four. Um, on watching, didn't didn't really work for me at all. I'd probably give it a two for enjoyment. And on reflection, um, yeah, I have to have to give it a, a two again. It it really didn't click with me at all. Well. That's Little Joe, rounding off our two new releases this week. Up next, we have Film Club. We're sticking with the plant theme for the 80s botanical blockbuster, Little Shop of Horrors. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Rick Moranis leads this big screen adaptation of the off-Broadway musical take on the Roger Corman B-movie. Moranis plays a nerdy florist who finds his chance for success and romance with the help of a giant man-eating plant who demands to be fed. What kind of a weirdo plant is that, Seymour? Little Shop of Horrors, a story about a boy. I've given you sunlight, I've given you rain, looks like you're not happy, unless I open a a girl. You don't make nice boys when you live on Skid Row, Mr. Mushlick. See, 
A florist. I'm telling you, Audrey, he's not a good, clean kind of boy. He's a professional. The classic trailer for Little Shop of Horrors. There, I must admit, I'd never seen this film before. I'd, I'd missed out on it um, growing up, and it was great to finally get around to watching it. Simon, had you seen this before? No, I hadn't, and my sort of take on it was very similar to yours because I knew of this film mainly through my dear stepdad, who often would quote at the dinner table when we all sat down. <laughs> Feed me Seymour, and so I only know it from from that. Um, and he, you know, he was telling me when we were growing up, like me and my sister, that we should watch this movie, and of course we never did. Um, so thank you for giving me the opportunity to now have context to my stepdad's jokes. Did it stand up to to, to whatever you thought in your head this film was? Well, I should start by saying I don't really like musicals. I just don't really watch them. When I do, I just find them quite hard work. Um, so I was prepared to endure this movie and actually it's really fun mm-hmm. I really had a good time with it so Matt do you have a history with I, the, yeah the shop? I mean so as a child of the 80s with a with a younger sister um, who was a you know Greece and Wizard of Oz and all of those fanatics this was uh, this was on loop in our house growing up for for quite a while um, you know it's funny I hadn't seen it for a long time since uh, since I was a kid and and I, I, I do like a musical. I like a kind of classic Hollywood musical, but I am, you know, kind of slightly allergic to the sort of more Broadway style mm-hmm. musicals that uh, that Mencken and uh, Ashman are, are famous for. But you know, watching this again, I mean, it's it's pretty irresistible. Um, and I think that's largely down to those two two central performances, and of course, this kind of constellation of great supporting turns mm-hmm. from the likes of Steve Martin and John. Who's Candy. weirdly hot in it. Is it the, the the dark hair? It's the dark hair. It's not, I should add, the fact, the that, he's a fact that he is a masochistic dentist. <laughs> um, but he he looks different when he was young. Would you believe it? I mean, it's such a great great little idea as well. I mean, in the in the so so this is a a remake mm-hmm. of a of the nineteen sixty Roger Corman film that was famous for being shot in just two days. Um, and Jack Nicholson has a has a tiny cameo uh, playing effectively the Bill Murray part. In this, this uh, masochist that that wants to go to the dentist and uh, and have his teeth pulled out. So, for this one, they gave him his uh, his opposite in Steve Martin's uh, sadistic dentist, mm-hmm. and the kind of clash between those two is uh, is one of the highlights of this. I think. Can I say that the supporting cast and cameos that are on the poster, they're talked about, talked up quite a lot. It's that's not what really resounded for me watching it. That's not what delighted me. Even though you do have Bill Murray and Jim Belushi, mm-hmm. Christopher Guest turns up really early does, on. Yeah, kind of slightly unrecognisable, I guess, because it's it's, it's in that mid eighties period where you're used to seeing him more made up or in costume, maybe in The Princess Bride, etc. But for me, Rick Moranis really carried this film, and he's somebody as an actor who you normally just see in supporting roles yeah. or usually beholden to some bigger, higher concept like in Honey I Shrunk the Kids, or he's maybe a utility player in Ghostbusters. But to see him carry a musical role like this was a real revelation to me. I mean, absolutely. And one thing that's kind of really interesting is that that, that I hadn't seen until revisiting this week was um, you know the, the VHS that we had when we when we were kids that was probably taped off telly was. Uh, was the uh, theatrical release right. version of this film, which ends with a, you know, with a happy ending of them returning to this mm-hmm. Rockwellian dream that they've got of, and getting married. But uh, I'd never seen the director's cut ending, right. which was chopped off of it mm-hmm. you know, with some, after some test screenings. Yeah. And it ends with this kind of big Ghostbusters-style rampage through 
through the city that's um that really makes the film and, and really makes it uh Do you think it's so? satire bite mm. a lot a lot harder than and and the romantic tragedy as well mm-hmm. which is again just not there in you know him feeding her. Were you aware the... of all this, Simon, when watching it? Um, I did kind of have a have a read up of it mm-hmm. afterwards, and and understood that there was an alternative ending. But I think, um, you know, there is a sort of subtle bite in the happily ever after when you get that closing shot of the smiling mm-hmm. baby sapling mm-hmm. of Audrey yeah. too. Um, so I guess it's it's less direct, but it's yeah. hinted at. I also love the the fact that this is such a great uh, product of the the, the the British studio system of, of, of the eighties, where these American films would come over and be mm. shot, you know, on, on on British soil. That that street set they create actually on the 007 stage, isn't it? Um, is so amazing. The production design is just off the charts. It's all physical as yeah, well. Really so that amazing. that that ending when you watch it probably just makes it bust out a little bit of that staginess of it for me, maybe. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's it's. I get. I guess it's more the the sacrificing mm-hmm. of the two main characters, which you don't get in the uh, theatrical edition. Mm-hmm. So you know him feeding her, and this is. I guess if you know, on some level, it is a, a satire of the American dream and the cost of success, and that you have to you know give your blood to to make it. And at what cost do you do you keep do you stop? Um, when he literally feeds his girlfriend to the to the plant and then gets eaten himself, and then they just destroy. You know, it's capitalism run rampant at the end yeah. it was much more like a sort of Joe Dante movie than perhaps so perhaps so do you have a favourite song it's got to be the classic Feed Me mm-hmm. somewhere that's green maybe I think I think it's Suddenly Seymour where Suddenly all the way Seymour, through yeah. Ellen Green has this very specific on camera kind of energy and she has such a, a squeaky closed throated voice and then when she just opens up <laughs> in Suddenly Seymour it's like wow there's a, there's a lovely clip on um, you can find on YouTube that was because Ellen Green you know originated mm-hmm. the role off Broadway before making the movie and they wanted to have Cindy Lauper instead yeah for I the film yeah. Yeah. I can see that yeah <laughs> but she came back and did it on Broadway for just two nights in 2015 with Jake wow. Gyllenhaal and uh, there's a clip of them you know you can watch about 20 minutes of the show on, on YouTube of them two doing Suddenly Seymour and so on how's Jake in it he's yeah he's pretty good I mean it's more of a it's one of those um, what what do you call them where it's uh, not not a full production but okay. scripts in hands and mm. sort of a dress oh, right. thing but uh, but yeah really good so it's in the news in the past week that Rick Moranis, who you know, very much semi-retired from filmmaking you know, in the mid-90s to look after his family, he's coming back for a, a remake, reboot, sequel, whatever it is, mm. of the Honey, I Shrunk the Kids franchise. And it's, 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 it's fascinating. Some of the conversations I saw coming out of that, he's only really a figure in the memories and minds of people who were kids at a certain time, maybe in the mid-late 80s. Yeah. And I wonder, given the range of ages we have on this podcast, are we actually that excited about Rick Moranis coming back? So, Sinran, do you, do you have much of a relationship with this guy? I don't know who that is. I right. mean, I only, <laughs> I only um, sort of, I didn't recognise him from other things in, in this movie, but I'm sure if you reeled off his IMDb, I would have seen them. Well, he was in the two Ghostbusters movies, and and you know that is probably the films that are wheeled out and showed the most out of what he made. And the Honey, I Shrink the Kids franchise was very much all its time, mm. I guess. Didn't really endure, um, but he has this run of supporting roles that um, kind of set him as one of the great act, com- comic actors of that generation. Spaceballs, yeah. Spaceballs. well, another one that <laughs> isn't wheeled out very much. That's yeah. Mel Brooks' Star Wars spoof. Yeah. Um, but yeah, are you excited to see him come I guess, back? I mean, I guess so. I mean, I'm, I'm more more uh, interested to see what they're going to do with this. I mean, I think they're just calling it Shrunk or Shrink or 
something now. But I don't know who's making it. I don't know who's behind that. I was looking at, we were chatting a little bit before this about Rick Moranis. I looked up Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, which again, you know, was on TV like every weekend when I was when I was a kid. But I haven't seen since and kind of quite surprised to, to find that that was you know, A, directed by Joe Johnston and B, written by you know, Brian Usner and um, Stuart Gordon. Mm-hmm. So yeah. the guys behind Reanimator and Society and these uh, Lovecraftian horror films. So who do they get for the new one? I, I have absolutely no, no idea. Vintage. Yeah. And of course, they're remaking Shop of Horrors, Little Shop of Horrors oh, as course, well. Yes. Um, they haven't confirmed the cast, but I think Billy Porter is tapped to play Audrey 2 mm-hmm. and um, Scarlett Johansson and, and Taron Egerton are also in... What do you think of what do you think of that potential casting? They could do better. They yeah. could do more interesting casting. I also heard Lady Gaga might be rumored, uh, which would be amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know. That would be a choice. <laughs> I don't. It? I think Seymour has to be such a particular sort of nerdy guy. Taron Egerton, we now have a very different expectation of what he would he could be on screen. Yeah, maybe. I mean, Jonathan Groff played him on stage mm-hmm. and he's, I think, such a talented actor and also a very talented Broadway star. Um, but I guess it's a good opportunity to sort of refresh the cast and have someone different. Yeah, And that voice on Ellen Green, I mean, it's pretty hard just to find an actor that can sing as opposed to, you know, a real... Zendaya? <laughs> <laughs> oh, interesting. <laughs> and I guess the big question about a remake would be how would they do Audrey 2, probably CGI, whereas this is yeah. just the absolute pinnacle of what could be done with Jim Henson-inspired, Jim, Jim Henson-adjacent mm. puppetry in the 80s, all manipulated by hand. They used... Uh, some trickery didn't they 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 ran the camera at different speeds and lip synced right. to make that eerie lifelike movement work and it still stands up today i think that particular yeah, although mouth janet movements. maslin in the new york times at the time in her review said that she thought that the syncing up was not working um she was critical of that at the time i, w- I wonder which though because rick moranis i think so because they were filming at half speed or maybe they were filming it double, whatever, whichever way they were doing it, Rick Moranis had to to sync with that, so he would be either either lip syncing quickly or lip syncing slowly. Do you think it's easier to lip sync quickly or slowly? Which well, you're, you you're, more? you're the person with with, with acting experience here, Matt. Which would be harder for you? I think this slow, slowly would be more of a challenge. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. I think. Anyway, that is Little Shop of Horrors. A recommendation from the table? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Even if you're not a fan of musicals, I think this is a pretty good one. I'm not particularly a fan either, and I had a great time watching this one for the first time. Next week, we have Portrait of a Lady on Fire, one of those big films from Cannes last year. We also have the new film from Todd Haynes, Dark Waters, and because of that, Film Club is Todd Haynes' 1995 film, Safe. Let us know what you think of those at the usual channels, which are Truth and Movies at TCOLondon.com, at Truth and Movies on Twitter, or at the comments section at lwlies.com slash podcast. Simran, Matt, thank you so much for joining me this week and talking through those films. I'm Michael Leader, and as always, this has been a 7 Digital production. Mom 
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.